Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? We're a week into the season. Things are happening, good and bad, depending on where you are listening to this episode from, depending on what team you root for. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to try to dig a little deeper into some hot, unsustainable, cold starts around the league, players and teams, and talk about whether we think those starts are real or not, whether they are sustainable or unsustainable. And again, it's good and bad in this episode. So, Wolfon, let's not waste any time pretending to care about each other's days. <laughs> where are we starting this? Where, where do you want to go here with our, is this real um, episode? I guess, well, we'll just ask each other how we feel about uh, about these trends and then yeah and we, then can, we can we can throw throw your trend out there maybe tell me a little about it and then okay. i'll tell you my thoughts on it i might interrupt at various points to tell you my thoughts on it depending on what you're fair enough okay so look coming into this year i guess i would say i was cautiously optimistic about ben simmons's fit in brooklyn and you know, we touched on a couple of worrying signs from preseason, and now we're four games into the regular season, and those red flags are getting, I don't know, redder, I guess. They're they're billowing more. I, you know, I, I don't really understand how the red flags work in reality, but uh, whatever would make a red flag more alarming, uh, that's what's happened through these first four games. Really in every facet of the game, right? Like, I don't think his defense has looked nearly uh, as stout as it did before the long layoff. And on the offensive side of the ball, he looks more tentative than ever. And I think, like, we always want to take early season samples with a grain of salt or two. And I think especially so when the player in question is coming off of a 16-month layoff and, you know, even apart from having to shake off the cobwebs associated with that long layoff, we knew was going to probably take some time to, like, rebuild his confidence. So from where you sit, to what extent are these concerns with Simmons on both sides of the ball? going to continue you know to what extent is are are we watching the real ben simmons or is this just uh you know the the ben simmons that we're seeing shaking off rust and figuring out where he fits in this new ecosystem and it's going to look completely different by the end of the season little column a little column b because i think defensively he'll get back to what he was i do I, i don't think i don't think any of the concerns with him any of the you know, the red flags with when it comes to his game, usually would ever have me believing that he'd be, he'll be like a non-impact offender at this stage of his career. I think he will get back to doing what he was defensively. Offensively, <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, the Nets playing at a slow pace, the Nets not really getting out and running with him. I mean, maybe that is also partly tied to the fact he's not you know, wreaking the havoc he usually does on the defensive end that can then lead to those fast breaks. So I, I get that it goes hand in hand. But I would say offensively, that's the biggest, if there is a red flag, that's it, right? It's like, look, him driving into the teeth of, or, you know, kind of driving to the basket and then not taking a shot or 
catching the ball in a position near the basket and not taking a shot and looking to dish it off. Like that stuff we've talked about with him for years. So that is who he is. Like we know that. I don't think that was going to change because he had this long layoff and maybe, you know, got himself feeling better about himself. Like that is who he is offensively. That's always going to be there. He's always going to be made fun of for it. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. The transition stuff and like not looking like himself in terms of the guy who's running the open floor and getting out and getting back and forth. That to me is what the red flag is. And the reason I would say I believe that it'll work itself out is because I believe he'll get back to himself defensively. And if he does that, he will, you know, wreak havoc. He will force turnovers. That'll lead to transition opportunities. And hey, if, you know, if you, even if it's like two or three baskets a night or a couple baskets a night from transition opportunities, and he's sitting there averaging 10 or 11 points right now instead of six or seven, whatever it is, it, it already doesn't look quite as bad and looks more in line with really who he probably is and who he should be on a team with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. But I don't know, maybe if you ask me in a few weeks and his defense still doesn't look like Ben Simmons of old, then there's problems. Then there's major issues because it's not like the Nets took a flyer on him. They're pretty committed to him. Yeah. And like to your point, the Nets are 28th in opponent turnover rate. So that's one area that I spotlighted coming into the year where I'm like, okay, this is something that he can help them with. That's going to get them out and run. Uh, that's that's going to get them out in the open floor, which is something they need to be doing because they're really good in transition. And you create this kind of positive feedback loop where he's helping your defense and your offense at the same time. And yet he's not helping them force more turnovers. He's not helping them get out in transition. They're like 20th in transition frequency. Uh, they're 30th in overall defensive rating, 29th in defensive rebound rate. And you know, what's maybe most worrying is all of those things are like significantly worse with Simmons on the floor than with him on the bench. Like not only is he not helping in those areas, but, and I know, especially with small sample sizes, the on off data can be noisy. So I'm not going to read too much into it, but like to this point, he is hindered in those areas more than he has helped. And I just, you know, even from watching him, it just doesn't like, he does not look explosive defensively in the way that we've seen him look in the past the Nets really haven't like tried him at center all that much and that hasn't been a particularly successful formula in the past but I think it's maybe worth exploring at least a little bit more than they have to this point the problem with that I guess is like Nick Claxton's been straight up better than him like yeah significantly better than him so far so it's like you know if you want to veer away from like the Claxton Simmons look that hasn't really worked offensively if you're going on merit, like Claxton's the guy who should be playing over Simmons in those one big alignments. Um, and I, yeah, I just don't know how or how long it might take for him to to get that confidence back. Because even when it is like a semi-transition kind of possession, when it looks like the Nets maybe have an opportunity to get into some early offense, he is... Like, I know a lot of people have have cited the fact that he's barely even looking at the rim, which is 100% true. But even more than that, it's like he he's killing his dribble before he even gets to the free throw line. You know, like he has no conviction in his drives to the basket. And it's just, just like not really helping the Nets generate any kind of advantage at the offensive end. And like all these things that that we could look at on paper and be like, this offensive environment makes sense for him. This is a, you know, somewhere that he can thrive. None of that has really 
come to fruition yet. Um, and like the craziest stat to me, Simmons's usage rate right now is 14%, which would be by far the lowest of his career. And if like, this is a max player who at least at one point in time fancied himself a point guard and like an offensive hub who has the usage rate of a role player, that 14% on its own is very low for a player of his stature. It also like dramatically oversells his actual offensive involvement because I was going to say it's about 14% higher than I thought it was. Well, almost half of that is turnovers. Like his turnover rate is 40% right now, which means on 40% of the possessions that he is using either, you know, to like that he's finishing these possessions either with a shot, a drawn foul or a turnover. 40% of the time it's a turnover. He has turned the ball over 11 times. He has actually tried to put the ball in the basket 13 times or 14 if you include his one drawn shooting foul. He's basically as likely or almost as likely to turn the ball over as he is to try and put it in the basket right now. Like that's he's also literally as likely to commit a foul than he is to attempt a shot. He's got 14 fouls in like 80 minutes. So I think he's got the yeah. same amount of fouls as field goal attempts or maybe one more foul. Like it is a disaster all around so far. Yeah, he's fouled out of two games, right? Yeah, and two that's, three I mean, games. That, that, that sort of goes hand in hand with the lack of explosiveness defensively, right? Like he's sort of forced to use his hands more uh, because he just hasn't looked as laterally explosive and isn't really able to kind of swallow up ball handlers the way that he's done in the past. The sort of measures of like defensive activity that you might look at where they're not perfect measures by any means of like overall defensive impact. But if you look at like steals, blocks, deflections, things like that, like he's not really making an impact in any of those areas. So um, I'm with you. And then I feel like I, I don't think this is exactly the player that he's going to be when we when we look at him at season's end. But I'm worried for his sake, for Brooklyn's sake. Like I just he just looks like a player who's playing with absolutely no confidence right now and. I don't know. How do you how do you get out of that spiral, right? Because he's been sort of locked in that spiral for seemingly a couple of years now. Yeah, and I will say too, it is concerning to me that, you know, a twenty-six year old who's already had a back procedure lacks that explosiveness. Not like again, I'm not saying, oh, he should have come back his old self jumping out of the gym, but like if something physically, if someone was going to say, okay, there's going to be physically something Ben Simmons has to get over, I'd be like, well, it's probably his conditioning. His guy hasn't played in 60 months. Like he'll, they'll probably have to slowly ramp him up in terms of how many minutes he can take. But I didn't think he would look this glued to the ground almost. And he's playing as if his back is still bothering. I'm not saying it is. Like, you know, surgery apparently went well. He's, he's back on the court. Clearly, like from that perspective, I think everything's fine. But if you watched him play, he he's playing like a guy who might need back surgery, not a guy who just had it like, you know, however long ago and is recovered and is supposed to be fully healthy now, if that makes any sense. That to me is like, if we're talking red flags, that's one of them. Because, you know, that stuff's supposed to be in the past now. Many think it's like, okay, get his conditioning back. Maybe he slows down a bit later in games. But he's, he's starting games looking like he's moving in quicksand. Yeah, so I, I, maybe that is. Maybe maybe it's like he's not feeling right physically and that is creating that sort of psychological block where it's like how do you feel confident if you if you can't trust your body or you don't feel like you can trust your body? I mean, maybe maybe that is what it comes down to. Yeah. Um but I don't know if that would make me feel better or worse about where he might be 
by mid season or end of season. Right. Um, and that's obviously impossible for us to know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm um, something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Obviously, uh, he was one of my most interesting players coming into the season for this very reason. Cause I didn't know which way it was going to go. Like I saw the avenues to success, but also I said, you know, if he can't make it work in this offensive environment, he might not be able to make it work any where and yeah i think that's kind of where i would be really worried ever after watching this first handful of games with him in brooklyn yeah we're about six weeks from uh part of a, a future make or miss segment being make or miss ben simmons as an nba player um all right okay let's go to a more positive note and to what i would say out of all the early season surprises disappointments whatever i'd call the thing that i think is most real and that is that the portland trailblazers are good. They've got road wins at Sacramento and at the Lakers, which I don't think either one of those teams is good. But given that we both thought those three teams would be battling for the final two play-in spots, to notch road victories over those teams in the first week of the season is actually very big. The comeback win over the Lakers, obviously, with Dame, you know, with our first look at Dame time in a, a while. It had been too long. Then they get wins against Phoenix and Denver, who are more like the top tier, you know, the expected top tier of the West, that indicates that, you know, maybe they are going to be playing for more than just play-in positioning. If you remember when we did our over and underachievers episode uh, in the preseason, I was fairly high on them as potentially more than just like a bottom half play-in team. I think they could actually be good. They're still one player away, at least, if we're talking about them taking another leap and, you know, maybe Dame finally being able to contend again in Portland. But uh, for one, like they're the pick that they owe Chicago is top 14 protected. So if they were to actually get in the playoffs, that pick would convey this coming draft. And the way that pick works is like if it doesn't convey this year, it's top 14 protected like every year until 2028. So them making the playoffs this year, they, they would just get that out of the way, give that pick to Chicago, and then they'd have every first round pick of their own starting in 2024. You know, you start to look at it. Those got, protections like... They they can really jam you up in terms yeah. of in terms of your trade avenues because right. not knowing whether it's going to convey means you can't trade these future picks because of the Stepien rule. So that right. actually like it would in a lot of ways behoove them to just send it out. Right, and if and if they if they make the playoffs and they send it out literally on draft night once the Bulls have made that or you know once the pick goes to the Bulls then the Blazers are then eligible to trade their 2024 pick and and picks beyond that right because they've got their own you start looking at even their cap sheet um and like they've got Dame Simons GP2 Shade and Sharp all under long-term team control like suddenly there's maybe an opening to do something but in terms of this year even from the the offseason I loved um extending Simons some people thought it was an overpay I love the dude I thought I mean if you saw his 20 point third quarter uh, in the last win against Denver that just completely turned that game. Sharp has looked, I think, pretty good, given that he was seen as more of a project when they first drafted him. They, Gary Payne II hasn't played yet, by the way, and mm -hmm. their defense already now, small sample size, but still, their defense already looks a lot better than it was last year. They're actually one of four teams right now who have a top 10 mark on both sides of the court. Funny enough, uh, it's them, the Knicks, the Mavs and the Cavs that are, are those teams. But no, I just think um, even like Jeremy Grant being back there, right? like I think he looks much better in a complimentary role on a better team than he did trying to be something more than that on a bad team like in Detroit. And I think also it gives something, the, the Blazers something they haven't had, bef not before, but in a while, or at least like in, in recent memory. And that's, 
outside of a dynamic offensive backcourt. It gives them a forward, small, big, whatever you want to call them, a bigger guy who can create for himself if you need it to. Who can, if you need him to put it on the floor in a certain situation, aka the game winner against the Lakers when everyone thought the ball was going to Dame, the Lakers did a good job to make sure it couldn't. And Jeremy Grant can do that. He can put the ball on the floor, attack LeBron James, and score over Anthony Davis. Like with Jeremy Grant, you have the luxury of you know a secondary tertiary, probably tertiary like offensive creator but a guy who can do a lot of the other little things that you want from role players so I think he's perfectly cast on this team they're longer than they were last year I just think they've complemented that dynamic offensive but poor defensive backcourt a lot better than they have in recent years and again Gary Payton hasn't played yet so I just think the the roster makes sense it's more balanced than it has been in a few years they've got more length I think they've got more defensive upside you know if there was any concerns about whether Dame can get back to being Dame I think he's quieted those already. Like if he's healthy, I think this is again who he is and it's the dame of old and you know what you're going to get from him. Simons again, I think offensively he's looked good. Like I I think the ingredients are all here for them to be a team that hangs around the playoff race, not just the play-in race. Now, whether they get into that top six, I don't know, but I do not expect that this team is going to fall off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, we talked on the last episode about uh, Winslow and how, you know, the ability to play him at the five, potentially the closed games was this new wrinkle for them that in the, couple of times we've seen it has looked really effective uh i also mentioned in talking about them or i put it to you you know like should be we should we be worried about dame because of how he looked last season and how he looked in that opening game and you very astutely said absolutely not and uh you were yeah very correct in that assessment because since then he has looked otherworldly and I think like healthy Dame we've seen is like a walking top five offense, right? So I think especially with with Simons there, uh, really stepping into like that CJ role as secondary creator when he's on the court with Dame, primary when Dame is on the bench and it's sort of a seamless transition of power. I have really no concerns about the offense being able to sustain a top 10 level. Uh, the defense, I'm I'm very curious to see like to what extent they can sustain what they've done so far because... Some of it feels sustainable to me and some of it doesn't like they're still giving up a lot of shots at the rim, a lot of corner threes. They're not as aggressive with their pick and roll coverage as they were last season. Last year, I felt like, you know, they were having their bigs essentially like blitz or hard hedge a lot of pick and rolls. Whereas now like Nurkic is kind of still playing up at the level, but Quick Nurkic uh, note, by the way, just, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I thought that game against the Lakers too, he started to show some signs. Like, you know that what we were talking about, Ben Simmons looking like he was running in quicksand and just looking like out of sorts? If anyone watched the first couple games, Yusuf Nurkic looked like that. Like, he looked kind of cooked in the first two games. I'd say second half of that Lakers game, he started to come to life. He's starting to round into form. And again, he's probably never going to be what he was at his best that before he hurt his foot year, a few years ago, three, four years ago. But... I do think he has looked a lot better like the last game and a half, and we know how he raises their defensive ceiling. So yeah. if he keeps rounding into form, that's just another boost for them. It's also like, okay, so if you look at what's powering their success defensively so far, it's two huge things where if you can just sustain these two things over the course of a season, it can go a long way toward defensive competence overall, right? And one of them is they're one of the best defensive rebounding teams in the league. And the other is that they're second in the league in defending without fouling, like limiting opponent free throw attempt rate. And so when the Blazers defense has been successful in the past, 
that's been the formula. They've never been like a high turnover team, the defensive end, and they've never been the kind of team that can kind of overwhelm you with size and physicality to the point that, you know, uh, you're seeing opponents with like a really low two point percentage, you know, like that's, that's not really how they've been successful. They've done it by defending with discipline, just like defending without fouling and cleaning the defensive glass. And especially to the point about defensive rebounding, like Nurkic is a huge part of that. And that's why, or that's not entirely why, but that's a huge part of why they've been so much more successful with him on the floor than with him off in the past, because in the seasons when he's missed a ton of time, their defensive rebounding rate has absolutely cratered as they've tried to work in, uh, you know, let's say different types of bigs in, you know, like Hassan Whiteside, who is more concerned about chasing blocks than he is about boxing out yeah, and just being positionally sound. So that feels like something that maybe they can sustain to at least a, a reasonable degree and that that can lift their defensive floor to the point that, like, I don't think they're going to continue to be top 10. No. But, um, you know, maybe they can just be average. And with an elite offense, then, yeah, maybe that can be enough to lift them. I don't know. What do you think? You think out of play in territory? Is that on the table? I think it is, man. I think it is. If you if you have an elite offense, an average defense, and the type of, like, game-changing superstar, like, you know, the, the level of star Dame is at the top of your roster, I definitely think you're threatening for a... A top, I, I think you can, yeah, avoid the plane and get in the playoffs, and then I think you can scare someone in the playoffs too with that kind of makeup. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm suddenly, I was already very interested in what they could look like after re-signing Dame and the way they reshuffled the roster around them. Now I'm really intrigued by, you know, the kind of damage they can do in the West in terms of to other teams, right? Because them getting in that top six means you know a team that we thought was a pretty secure playoff team is going to have to play for their lives in a play-in so it, it changes everything and the Blazers are good and I think they are yeah and I think to the point I was making about their defensive scheme like even even not being quite as aggressive as they were last year like having Nurkic play up high still puts a lot of pressure on the back line and I think they are better equipped to play that style than they were last season because of you know having a guy like Jeremy Grant, having Josh Hart for a full season, having GP2 once he's back, you know, having Nas Little back there. Like, those guys can rotate and close space on the backside. But it's still dicey having, you know, like Dame and Simons have to make those rotations behind the initial ball screen coverage. And I, I'm going to be keeping my eye on that to see sort of how that looks moving forward because i'm i'm not sure i mean maybe they can make it work um maybe they can't i think that is going to be a huge determining factor in whether they can uh sustain this hot start so um certainly a yeah like an interesting and fun team to watch so far great to see dame back and looking like himself again i'm actually really excited to see what it looks like with gp2 in the mix because if they can find basically like that same role that he had in Golden State where he's almost operating like a center on offense. Like one of the big issues, you know, one of the only issues, frankly, that their offense has had in recent years is like Nurkic is a really poor finisher, you know, like they, Dame will get blitzed and Nurk will have these four on threes and his finishing, you know, on the short roll is like pretty abysmal for a guy. Yeah, he's getting like stuffed by the rim. 
So I'm curious to see, you know, having a smaller guy who has just a little bit more pop, who can actually get up for lobs and who can also be maybe a little bit more of a playmaking threat. Like if he's catching the ball, you know, with Portland, they obviously love to set the, the ball screen super high for Dame to give him that space to pull up or force the defense into this really yeah. difficult decision of blitzing him that high up. I would have a lot more confidence in a guy like GP2 catching the ball like at the nail and having to make, you know, two or three di- uh, dribbles going to the basket or, you know, just having a little bit more time to make a decision about what to do with the ball in a four on three situation than I would in Nurkic. So I think that could be, you know, on top of what he's obviously going to bring to their defense, an interesting wrinkle for their offense as well. All right, let's keep it rolling. Where are we going next? So, yeah, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to watch the Knicks much this season, but a little bit. One, yeah, so one thing that has stood out to me is they're playing with a lot more pace, which feels anathema to like the Tom Thibodeau way where they really want to grind out possessions. By the way, we should, I think we, one thing we should start, and I think we should find a sponsor for it, like a, a children's educational sponsor or something is Joe Wolfon's word of the week. Is this guy just dropped athema? And I, I I love it. I'm just saying, I think we should have like a Joe Wolfon's word of the week where you throw out a really interesting word that a lot of people probably haven't heard or used. We then give you the definition Go on dictionary.com. Someone sponsor this segment. Kuban, um, someone. Anathema, just basically like something that sort of run count, runs counter to a person's philosophy or, you know, something that you would typically think that person very much dislikes. And and for pretty much all of Tom Thibodeau coach teams, we, we don't really see them play up and down styles of basketball. Like they're more half court oriented, more like post oriented and more about like grinding out possessions than they are about, you know, playing in the open floor. And I think that can maybe go hand in hand with his reluctance at times to play young players who tend to be a little bit bouncier and faster. One thing I always like to do when I'm looking at pace is like pace itself is a very poor indicator of how fast a team actually plays because it's taking into account both ends of the floor. Right. So like a team could be really fast on offense. I'll I'll use the Raptors last season as Mm -hmm. an example where I think they were second in transition frequency, but they were 29th in pace. Because yeah, um, their defense was grinding teams down at the end of the shot clock. Exactly. So their defense forced opponents to work deeper into the shot clock than any other team, which was slowing them down overall. Also worth noting, their half-court offense was super slow. So even right. like the transition frequency wasn't enough. They, they wound up average in offensive pace, um, which the site that I use is unpredictable. And the, the stat that they... Uh, track is average time to shot so on an average offensive possession how long is it taking this team to actually get a shot up toward the basket the Knicks last year were 27th in that stat this year they're 10th and that like again we it, it feels like the perfect stat to me to say okay is this real or not because small sample sizes can do a lot of wonky things but that's something I specifically went to look at that stat because it was something that my eye test was telling me looked completely different for a team that played in the mud for most of last season. And I'm watching, especially with their second unit, when Quickly is out there and Toppin's out there, Cam Reddish too, like that unit really gets out and runs. Maybe the stat that was like most indicative of that to me was 
Um, so last season, the Knicks ran off of live ball turnovers 62.6% of the time. That was 15th in the league. So far this year, they're up to 89% of the time wow. running off of live ball turnovers, which is second. I'm curious to see because I think that's something they really need. Like they needed that injection of pace. Uh, it feels to me like they're playing with just a little bit more purpose. And I don't know if it's if it's real or not. Like that's, it's a bit but to of a point. It also, on it. But like, it also be, sorry, sorry, I keep, we're, we're lagging well, here just, a bit and it's, we're doing I the like, that. I just wonder, that question to me boils down to, has Tibbs embraced this philosophical shift or is it this kind of early season fluke that is not going to sustain itself because we're going to see him scale back minutes for like the maybe more reckless younger players on his roster in favor of the steady handed vets who are going to be more caretakers when it comes to offensive process. It'll probably stabilize a bit. Maybe they won't be running or getting into their offense as quick as they are now, but I do think it'll end up quicker than last year. Like I, I think in general, look, I think quickly, you know, he's going to have a bigger role than he had last year and he's played well so far. Toppin, they've talked about how he's going to get more. Like, I think you can't inject those guys into the regular rotate or like give them more minutes and not have it benefit how quickly you play offensively. Maybe Tibbs pulls them back a little as the season wears on, but I don't think you can play guys like that more minutes compared to last year and not have it translate into the pace with which you play. So they're a more fun team because of it. And I think it'll, I think it'll last all season. I'd, I'd say it's real. Again, it's a lot of this stuff we're talking about. It's like, it's real to a certain extent, right? Like, and the Knicks pace is a perfect example of that. Do I think they'll be the 10th fastest offense all year? Uh, probably not. But do I think they'll be a hell of a lot faster? Do they, will they get into their offense a hell of a lot faster than they did last year with quickly and top in, in the mix more? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think maybe you could make the argument with their starters too that just having the ball in Brunson's hands more rather mm -hmm. than Randall's. Like Randall is a very methodical player, even though he's, you know, for a big man, super fast. Yeah. I mean, that's like one of the advantages that he has over other bigs is just his straight line speed. But he tends to be uh, more of like a probing offensive player, whereas Brunson, I feel like, is probably a little bit more decisive, even though he does like to dance with the ball himself. Uh, I wonder if that helps as well in terms of just getting into their offense a little bit quicker. Because it's not just about transition, right? It's about hunting early offense and not letting nine seconds tick off the shot clock before you get into your action. Yeah. Um, all right, what's your next one? My next one is Ja Morant's shooting, which, you know, if anyone's watched Ja so far this season, and I implore you to do that, if you haven't watched Ja yet this season, what the hell are you doing? You know, he's doing a lot of the things that already made him great. But the big X factor is a guy who was, you know, at best a slightly below average three-point shooter through the first three years of his career is now shooting 60% from deep. The easy answer is obviously that's not real. He's not going to shoot 60%. But the real question is, is this real from a, is, can he be a good shooter, right? Can he even be an above average shooter? Because the way that would open up his already explosive game and just completely befuddle any defense is trying to guard him. Like, They'd be stumped. They're already almost stumped because no one can stay in front of them. But you add the ability to shoot like that and especially pull up like his pull up numbers is what's like changing the game right now. He's shooting 61.5% on pull up threes. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, 
this isn't real. Now, job being amazing, job being, you know, one of the most invigorating watches in pro sports, that's obviously real. We know that's real. Jaw, Taylor Jenkins, and whatever else is going to be on this Grizzlies team, finding a way to get more than they should out of what their team is. Yeah, that's real. It's been real. So I take nothing away from Jaw or the Grizzlies in saying this. I'm specifically talking about the shooting. I can't believe it's real because if you look at the track record, and I'm obviously I know guys can improve. Guys improve all the time. But if you look at his track record and how consistent his shooting has been at a certain level... It's really hard for me to believe that then in one year or in one summer, he goes from being that for so many years, right? Like we're not talking about a guy whose shooting has gone up and down and there's been waves and there's been years and you've been like, oh, his shooting's like, he has been a very consistently mediocre to worse shooter. His first three seasons in the NBA, I'm rounding here, but 34%, 30%, 34%. So his first three years overall, 33.5%. Okay. Um, even if you include the playoffs, like his two times in the playoffs, he shot 32% and 34% from deep. Over two NCAA seasons at Murray State, he shot 34% from deep. Two NCAA years. His first three NBA years, playoffs included, 332 of 1,002, which is about, it's 33%. This year's preseason. So again, if it was going to be like, oh, he did something and now his shot is different. You'd probably start seeing it in the preseason. He shot three of 13 from deep in the preseason. So this, unfortunately, I do think is just small sample size theater. It's been fun to watch. He's gotten ridiculously and unsustainably hot from deep. But I kind of refuse to believe that a guy who has so consistently been a 30, 31, 32, 33, maybe out of his best, a 34% shooter from like the age of 18 to 22 at every level, no preseason, regular season, playoffs, college, it's just hard for me to believe that now he's going to step in this year and all of a sudden be a really good shooter. I'm not saying it can't happen one day. I'm just saying I don't think this is the year yet. Well, what if it's not really good? What if it's just like solidly, you know, average or or a little bit above average so, as a as a three? No, then that's that's doable and that would be amazing because, like I said, even he is so explosive and so impossible to stop from getting to the rim that even him being like an average or slightly above average three point shooter would do wonders for his game and for the Grizzlies and take him who is already at this unbelievable level to just another stratosphere. And I, yeah, yeah, that's doable. But like I said, like he, he's had years where it's like 33, 34, like that's the high end of what his baseline has been thus far. So yeah, like it's not, it's not crazy to think he could be at like 35, 36 this year. And if he does that on decent volume, that that's a huge step for him. When I say it's not real, I'm just saying like, Okay, obviously 60 is not real, but I don't even think like high 30s to 40 is real. I think if you're if you're hoping John Morant's an improved shooter, don't base your expectations on what happened the last four games based on what he's been the last like five years at multiple levels in different game situations and think the uptick could be a little above that, right? So instead of 30 to 34, maybe it's 35, 36, which again, I'm not taking anything away from. That's a big jump for a guy like John Morant. Dude, if John Morant is a 36% three-point shooter this year... How many guys in the league are you taking over him offensively? Because I'm thinking just off the top of my head, Jokic, Steph. <laughs> like, Would you take Dur- Dame Dur- or Book over him? Offensively, strictly offensively? Again, if he is a 36% three-point shooter who can do it off of the catch or off of the dribble, I think that I probably take him over both of those guys. And maybe yeah, over, tra- maybe over Trey as well. Uh, 
I I mean, like Trey's the better passer, and it will still be the better shooter. But like, just in terms of like Jaw's ability to get into the teeth of the defense over yep. and over and over again. I mean, that's virtually unparalleled in the league right now. So, no, I'm genuinely thinking like how I'm trying to rack my brain and think of who I who I would rather have offensively than him if that shooting is real to the extent that okay he's an average three-point shooter i yeah i I say that would be a short list it would make him like somewhere between the third to sixth best offensive player on the planet oh luke luca's the one so like luca steph Jokic, i feel like the clear the clear top three yeah i don't know it's not it's not a long list is all i'm saying i don't really have to worry about kd getting to the rim anymore that's the thing man no, you don't, but... I don't want to have a sobering <laughs> conversation about the state of Kevin Durant, but who's looked pretty much good, but great, but still. Uh, no, I think, yeah, so Jaw would be somewhere between, what, the fourth to eighth best offensive player if his shooting is even slightly above average. Eighth is too low. Like, fourth to sixth, to me, is sort of where he would slot in. And I don't know, man. I think, like, the, just the confidence with which he's taking those shots like really stepping into them with a lot of conviction. And I know that's a a super ineffable thing that like, you're not, (laughs) you can't quantify it. Like it doesn't actually mean anything. You know, I I can watch him and be like, Oh, he's really stepping into that shot with confidence. And that like, you could say that about a lot of guys who suck at shooting, like Russell Westbrook (laughs) steps into his shots with a lot of confidence, but like uh, obviously that doesn't translate. So I'm not saying that's actually going to be an indicator of anything, but I do think, I don't know, like the the form on his shot looks good to me. He obviously has like the touch around the basket and from floater range and like is a really good free throw shooter, all of those things being positive indicators of overall shooting quality. So I don't think it's at all crazy to think that he could be a a 36% three-point shooter this year. I think that's very much in the realm of possibility. All right. Why don't we take a break, come back, uh, get to both of our last is this real observations and then do some make or miss too. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, what is the last observation you want to explore today and ask me if I believe it's real or not? We got to talk about the Jazz, right? They started yeah. the season 3-0 and by beating some of the better teams in the league, you know, and, and beating them convincingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess they beat the Nuggets convincingly and then they needed overtime to beat both the Wolves and Pelicans. But those are three good teams that they beat. Uh, and then they dropped their fourth game to the Rockets. So obviously a little all over the map. And again, when we're talking about like, is it real or not? Like we're not saying that real means that the Jazz are going to continue to win 75% of their games, but real in the sense that hey, maybe the Jazz, as currently constructed, are actually pretty good and closer to being a play-in team than they are to being in the tank race. So uh, specifically, well, I'll I'll wait actually to get into specifics, but 
first off, just overall your impressions of Utah and how real what they've done so far is. I think it's somewhat real in the sense that they're going to be more competitive night tonight than a lot of people gave them credit for. And I look, I don't even if I project like I actually went through the schedules. Like if if the Jazz don't make a, like a tanking minded move which they're, they're going to they're going to trade some of the vets but even if they didn't and they just went through the season as constructed i'd still probably have them at like 55 56 losses but in getting there i think they will be much more annoying to play against and more competitive night tonight than a lot of people gave them credit for and for me the biggest reason is that they just have a lot more nba talent on the roster than you'd usually think about a quote-unquote fully tanking all in on tanking team would have the jazz don't have a any real top end talent. We know that they might not at this given the stage of the career. Some of their better players are, they might not even have any like secondary level talent, but they've got a lot of rotation caliber talent. Like I could probably count 11 guys who I like as NBA rotation players on this team. Like even at this stage, okay, Mike Conley, Larry Markinen, Malik Beasley, Jordan Clarkson, Kelly Olenek, Taylor Horton, Tucker, Rudy Gay, Nikhil Alexander, Walker, Jared Vanderbilt, Walker Kessler, Colin Sexton, in no particular order. I think those are 11 guys who are NBA rotation players on some level. And maybe maybe one or two of them you could take out and be like, ah, it's more. But still, you're, you've almost got two full lineups of rotation guys. And you're not going to compete anywhere near the highest level like that. But you're going to be better than a lot of fully tanking teams that have maybe like five of those guys and two of them are kept out every night. Or a team that's so young they don't know what's good like between the rotation caliber talent and some of the veteran IQ on the team I just find like they're gonna be in a lot of games and they're gonna steal some they've got some gunners like Clarkson who you know can be frustrating but also they could steal you a game like there's a lot of ingredients there where this team's gonna win a lot of games that you didn't think they could but then you look at the box score of the roster and you'd be like I guess that kind of makes sense there's enough depth there that they're not quite as terrible as you thought they were yeah, I think a few of those, or at least a couple of those guys you mentioned are fringier as far as NBA rotation. Fair, but even even if it's nine, goes, even if it's eight or nine, right? Yeah. Like that, I'd still say that's like three or four more than a lot of the other quote-unquote tankers will have on a night-to-night basis. No, I totally agree that they are a cut above that class of, I mean, I don't know, the Spurs have looked pretty good so far too. Yeah. So uh, like, let's just say a cut above the Rockets and Thunder. Like those are, given the way that the Spurs have played so far, given the leap that Devin Vassell seems to have taken, mm. uh, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, like it it really seems to just be those two teams that are clear bottom feeders in the West. So it's a low bar to clear, and we're certainly damning the Jazz with faint praise to say they're better than those two teams. But I don't know how much further than that I would actually go. I think that from what I've seen, they're a team that's going to rely on variance and that could win them a bunch of games that we don't necessarily expect them to win. Like those three games that they won against top tier competition, they won in large part by jacking up a lot of threes and hitting a lot of threes. And I'll give them credit for this. Like they really moved the ball. And yep. I, you know, even though Obviously, Quinn Snyder's not there anymore. Uh, it seems like Will Hardy has sort of just adopted a lot of the same principles in terms of, you know, drive, kick, drive, kick, swing, etc. And the, you know, just automatic quick decision making that everybody uh, has adopted and like the, the ball does not stick. And I think 
a lot of times that's what you see when there is like an egalitarian offense can sometimes just be the product of not having like you said that top end talent where there's one guy who can dominate the ball and sort of get the defense in rotation on his own it takes the collective but not every team can necessarily actually do that at a high level and I've been impressed with the Jazz's ability to actually put defenses in the blender so far um, just with their with their rapid decision making and quick ball movement Um, and I think you know, you can chalk part of that up to the fact that they have a lot of shooting and especially in the front court. And I think we saw, you know, especially against like Denver and Minnesota, like how that can give teams with maybe slower footed big men some real problems. Um, but I also think like the the shooting is going to regress. Like Kelly Olynyk so far <laughs> shooting 11 for 14 from three point range. And I just Those don't think- Those are John Morant numbers. Yeah, I, I think- the offense could continue to be pretty solid, uh, if not as good as it's been so far, because again, because they have a decent amount of shooting, and because they've looked good in terms of like their connectivity and their ability to move the ball, and also they're one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the league. And I don't think that's a total fluke because they actually have a lot of size up front. I mean, starting Olinick and Markinen together, having Walker Kessler off the bench, having Vanderbilt, who's like one of the best offensive rebounders in basketball. I think that will continue to be a strength for them. So I think the offense can be solid. It's the defense where I just really don't trust them to sustain anything resembling what they've done so far, which is still not that great. They're like, I think 15th or 16th. So league average. And I don't think that is going to continue. Like they allow a ton of shots at the rim more than any other team in the league so far. And yeah, again, they do have a lot of size up front, but I don't think that's an, like, they don't have any daunting rim protectors either. Right. Uh, I guess, depending on how you feel about Walker Kessler. So I, look, I think Kessler can be a re- uh, not yet, but I think he will be a really good defensive player, but he's not, sure. look, I, he's not going to step into the league and be, you know, the, the difference between the jazz being deplorable defensively and being like good enough to hang in the play in race or something like that. Right. And so it's not, I don't look at this team and think, oh, okay, they're funneling guys to the rim. That's how they want to play. And that's going to be a sound long-term strategy for them. Like the plus side of that is they are very good at limiting opponent three-point attempts, but I don't know that allowing them, like they're almost at 50% opponent rim frequency. And I just don't think that's a sustainable formula for success. And they've been pretty lucky with opponent three-point percentage that it's like 30% so far. So that's going to change. Um, I think that the bottom is going to fall out for their defense and that's ultimately what's going to pull them down uh, below the play in race. Like I think at the end of the day, yes, I do expect them to make a trade at some point that will accelerate that decline. But even without that move being made, like I expect them to fall down to the point that at, at very best, they're maybe like contending for like the nine or 10 seed and not really in the thick of it uh, the way that, their first four games have indicated that they might be so yeah. Um, but, but like to get and, a little bit more, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say, and then obviously don't discount the fact that they're the, the trades will come for yeah, this yeah. team. So like, even we're already what, saying this team is, you know, is obviously worse than the record and will probably end up closer to what we thought. And then you start taking away some of those depth pieces I talked about and, and the bottom can fall out pretty quickly. Yeah. And to that point, like Conley hasn't shot the ball well, but in terms of being an offensive organizer who mm-hmm. can spearhead that, you know, the type of unit that is going to move the ball and play selflessly. And like, 
he's been the engine of that, right? And I think the shooting will probably come around for him. Like he's looked pretty good to me overall for a guy who at various points last season looked borderline cooked. And I think if he can continue to do that, that's going to heat up the trade market for him. Like 100%. if the Lakers 100%. don't wind up swinging that trade with the Pacers, like Conley is somebody that I could see them locking in on. Um, so I feel like they'll have suitors for him if he can continue to do what he has done so far. Um, but yeah, like I, I do kind of want to hone in on marketing because I feel like to a certain extent, when you're asking if what the jazz have done so far is real, you're more or less asking if what marketing has done so far is real. And my answer to that is like a big shrug. I, I don't know what to make of it because I have been like a lifetime marketing skeptic. So it's obviously going to take more than four games to change my opinion of him. But he's done, I think, everything that he could possibly do to change that opinion. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just about... He's not on like some shooting heater, right? He's shooting 24% from three. He's actually changed the way that he functions offensively. He looks physically stronger. He looks a little bit quicker with the ball. His drives per game, his at-rim attempts, his two-point scoring overall, his free-throw attempt rate, like all of those things are way up. He's shooting like 60% from two-point range. And the fact that he has been as successful as he has been without shooting the ball well at all is really encouraging to me because I've said this before, he's always been a much better shooter in theory than he has been in reality. He's really only had one season when he's been above average as a three-point shooter. But despite that, he's like continued to operate as a stretch big without really rounding out the rest of his offensive game until now. And yeah, from a process perspective, I think it's been fairly convincing or as convincing as as something can be in a four game sample. So I, yeah, I don't know what to do with that uh, right now, but I would lean, I guess, toward the optimistic side of things, just given how it's looked, like given the way that he's finding success versus just saying, well, it's a four game fluke. Like he's changing what he's doing and and he's been successful so far. Yeah. And I think what makes that really interesting, like you talk about yourself, you know, kind of debating internally whether it's real and like what marketing is at this point. I think it's interesting to consider how some executives for contending teams might be facing that same question because like I haven't really heard marketing talked about a lot in terms of like, you know, the, the jazz vets that could be on the move. But if you look at the way he started the season and what he does bring, even on his average days, like not even the best days, which has been so far this season, as a guy who can bring some offensive pop maybe off the bench and slot in a little lower on the pecking order, obviously on a good team, he's under contract next year for about $17.3 million. The year after that, it's I think 18, but it's not even fully guaranteed. Like that is not at all a bad contract. It's If he's anywhere near this good for this season, like that's a bargain really, where it's like pretty low risk. If you're a team that maybe needs some offensive juice off the bench or another shoot, like whatever it is, I, I think Markkinen can become a really interesting trade target as the season goes on because of the way he's played thus far. And if he, if he can keep looking like the type of player who can still be playable, even when his shot's not falling, that's a big development for him. And I think that'll be a big kind of like light bulb moment in a lot of GM's minds too, because there are some things he does that can help contenders and at, on a potentially bargain contract, given the way the cap is going and 
The Jazz, for a variety of reasons, obviously are, you know, a, a team to watch as we end up getting like deeper into the season and closer to the trade deadline. But I think Markkanen especially could emerge as a guy to watch. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting decision for the Jazz to make of whether yeah. they see him as part of the long-term core or whether they want to sell high on him if they think that this would be selling high. Yeah, he's and... 25, so still, you know, still, you know, arguably a year or two away from his absolute prime. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, your last one. My last one is the Denver Nuggets' poorest defense. When we wrote about them in, uh, when I wrote about them in our, you know, tiers of contention se- season preview series, the one thing I talked about is what could sink them is their defense, and that's no secret. And especially with Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray back in the fold, I, you know, I wondered whether they'd be able to sustain the defensive drop off that might come with that. I'd say the numbers are worse than I could have imagined. So far, I mean, look, last year they got, without those two guys in the lineup, um, they got to 15th, middle of the pack defensively. They allowed 111.5 points per 100 possessions. To start the season, they're down to 28, 121.2. But as bad as it's been, and as much as they've just been cooked with like Jokic and drop coverage and teams just absolutely feasting on it, and a lot of that also coming against Portland, who is you know, extra uniquely equipped to just devour a team that is sitting in drop coverage between Dame and Simons. I am going to actually bring a little bit of optimism to this conversation and say that while I don't think the Nuggets defense will be good, I don't think it'll be anywhere like near quite this bad for much longer. And the silver lining I actually found is I think it's very easy if you haven't watched the Nuggets or maybe you look at like the basic numbers to be like, well, you know, Porter and Murray are back and they're two defensive sieves and that's why the defense, the defense has dropped off. But if you watch them and if you look into like some of the more advanced lineup numbers, you know, their starting lineup has actually been fairly average defensively when you look at it and their starting lineup with Brown in for Porter in those minutes has actually been excellent defensively. So I'm not really buying the like, well, Porter and Murray are back. They can't construct a good or even a passable defense anymore. I actually think it will stabilize the majority of the time that they've been absolutely shredded. It's been with the majority of their bench on. Now, some of the concern is that they've been cooked in some minutes with Jokic on without either of Murray or Porter. And again, him just kind of sitting in drop coverage against some good shooting teams probably contributing to that and we can talk about how that's a concern six months from now when the playoffs roll around but for now I'm gonna say yeah their defense is gonna be worse than last year but it's not gonna be quite as bad as it looks right now I think it'll stabilize I think especially as Porter and Murray um, round into form and the offense picks up we won't be talking about it as much either because if you really looked at like if you really wanted to go through the nuggets you know with a fine-tooth comb I think you'd say the offense is actually the bigger concern in going from almost elite last year without those guys, 6th to 12th so far through a week and a half this season. I think as Porter and Murray get more acclimated, the offense will get better. They'll be they'll look more like an elite offensive team. If the defense even stabilizes a little bit, I think they'll be well on their way. Jokic will play better than he has so far. So I'm not I'm not quite as concerned as, you know, a wannabe contender having the third worst defense in the league through a week would usually have me concerned. Your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I I think they'll be significantly better than they've been to this point. I think it's been just kind of a lethargic start from Jokic overall. Yeah. Like he's been 
And we know that he can lapse into passivity offensively from time to time. And I think especially in the past, like starting seasons, he has tended to be a little bit of a slow starter. So I don't know that that's like a big red flag yet, Uh, but it's just been kind of a weird, not all that impressive start from Jokic. And I just feel a little bit like everything trickles down from there. But we also knew there were going to be some hiccups working Murray back and working Porter back. And I think the defensive concerns with Porter aren't going away. And it's asking a lot for, you know, for like Aaron Gordon and KCP and Bruce Brown to kind of hold the dam with leaky defenders around them. And like in the past couple of regular seasons, Jokic hasn't been that. Like he's actually been a solid to above average defender in the middle. He's just done it in a little bit of a different way than a lot of big men around the league do it, where he's not, you know, he's not an anchor in the same kind of way, in the way that he is playing deep drop or, you know, camping out around the rim in a one-man zone. Like, that's not really his forte, so they're bringing him up higher in ball screen coverage to use his hands and his ability to be a disruptor uh, and, you know, sort of relying on the rotations behind him. But uh, I guess maybe you start to wonder if... Porter is going to continue to struggle as an off-ball defender. And if Murray is going to take some time to get back to where he was defensively and like at the point of attack as a screen navigator, all that, then is it too much of a strain on, you know, the defensively capable players on the roster? And are we going to start to see the cracks? Um, We've seen that early, but I think Jokic just sort of like improving his compete level and his activity level could go a long way toward making the entire unit look a lot better. Um, But at the same time, I think we've seen in the past, like a huge offensive burden on Jokic can bleed into his defense where he just doesn't have as much to give on that end of the floor. And I think the hope was Murray is going to come back, take a bunch of that load off of his shoulders, and he'll be able to commit more of himself to the defensive end of the floor. But it hasn't really looked like that so far. Like Murray has looked somewhat shaky. And again, we expected that. Jokic expected that. Like you saw that quote from Jokic before the season started where he was like, yeah, we know he's going to be terrible for the first 20 yeah. games. We'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Um, always love that man's brutal honesty. But, uh, you know, it's I guess the question then is, OK, how long is it going to take? How mm-hmm. far behind the eight ball are they going to get before they feel like they're operating at peak capacity again? And once they hit that point, if they hit that point, uh, you know, is it going to be? too much ground for them to make up to get into like a, you know, a top four seed and avoid a really daunting first round playoff matchup. I say it so much. Some listeners probably roll their eyes and like hearing it all the time, but losses in the first week of the season don't mean less than a loss. You know what you consider a big loss in January, February, March, April, whatever it is. So though I think the defense will stabilize and the offense will look more elite as the season rolls on, that doesn't undo what's already happened. They can't get these games back and, if that's the difference between, I don't know, third and fifth, fourth and sixth, first and third, that is the difference between home court in a series, the deeper you go on how annoying your matchup is in the first round. Yeah, no, I mean, you would hope to have had a better start than yeah. they've gotten off to so far, but they also, like, they beat the Warriors, like, they've, yep. you know, they'll be they, fine. They, they'll, they'll be fine. I really yeah. believe that. And, like, they were never built to win with defense anyway. Like, their defense no. obviously has to achieve some kind of baseline competency but they were built to win with an elite offense and i think at the end of the day we're going to be 
watching this team and seeing that elite offense in action. It just hasn't quite happened yet because of Jokic's slow start, because Murray is still finding his footing. And because, like you mentioned, like the bench, I think on both sides of the ball, has really struggled. Also, I guess if I had to point to something where I'm like, yeah, that's an area of concern that I think can and possibly will sustain itself. uh, I feel like the bench is is maybe that that big area of concern because that's, you know, again, wouldn't be the first time that we've seen that happen. Yeah. And as much as I like the KCP addition for them, they traded two rotation players for one, just thinning out their depth yeah. that much more. And I, you know, it's been my guy Bones Highland. It's been pretty up and down for him. Like a lot yeah. of really encouraging flashes offensively, a lot of very discouraging ones defensively. Um, I know Nuggets fans aren't really loving the DeAndre Jordan experience so far. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that bench situation uh, corrects itself. But season eleven of Pound the Rock, when we're like a thousand two hundred episodes in, we're going to be talking about another team not liking the DeAndre Jordan experience somehow. Yeah. Um, also, random shout out, but uh, they their defense has actually been better as well with rookie Christian Braun in the lineup for like a few minutes here and there. So that's another thing to keep an eye on. You never know if he becomes like a Mike Malone favorite, any other. Yeah. So, so I had one more uh, and we can just rip through it really quickly because I think it's definitely too small a sample to read too much into right now. Okay. But uh, league wide three point attempt rate is down from where it was last season. Uh, Last year, 36.8% 36.8% of all shots were three-pointers. So far this year, it's 34.7%. And that is obviously a very small you know, to negligible decline. But it is a decline nonetheless, and that's something that we haven't seen in 12 years. The last time that year over year, three-point rate actually went down rather than going up was from... Uh, going from the 2009-2010 season to 2010-2011. Since then, it's gone up, 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 up. And I've been wondering for a while, which is why this is interesting to me, when we were going to hit that stabilization point. Because I think there's been a, a fear, maybe a misguided fear, among some you know critics of the modern game, quote-unquote, that this was it was just going to keep going in this direction where more and more shots were going to be three-pointers and that was all the league was turning into. I never really bought into that. I did think there was going to be a kind of threshold where it didn't make sense anymore. And I wonder if we've seen that. One of the things I wrote about last year uh, and talked about coming into this season was rim frequency had been actually declining and had reached something of uh, a nadir, like a a 20-year low point last season. And what had happened, you know, what I found in researching for it was that I think like long mid-range frequency, which is like for the longest time, long twos were turning into threes. And that was where that increase was coming from. That had plateaued. That that plateaued like four years ago at like 10%. And I don't know that it can go much lower than that. Like I think ultimately having 10% of league-wide shots be long mid-rangers is like, that seems stable. Like I, don't, I just don't know that you can, you can't eradicate that altogether because those are the shots that defenses want to give you. So eventually you're going to have to take some of them. And I just wonder if we're seeing now, you know, having seen that some of the rim shots were then being reallocated to three-point shots, is there now a bit of a correction to that where teams are saying, okay, I don't actually know that it makes sense for us to take 
more threes than we were taking. I don't know if like just amping up three point attempt rate that much more is actually going to lead to more efficient offense at this point, if it's coming at the expense of shots at the rim. So I'm going to be tracking that. I'm really curious to see if that has staying power. And if we do see, you know, even if, even if it doesn't stay lower than it was last season, like let's say it winds up in the exact same place. I think it's interesting that we're seeing, yeah, the fa- yep. you know, we've potentially hit that threshold where uh, amping up three point attempt rate even further, no longer makes sense. Yeah. And I think you make a good point when it was like the, the misguided fears of people criticizing the modern game that like I, I would laugh sometimes listening to those complaints. And it's like, do you guys really think we're going to get to a point where 90% of the shots in a game are three-point attempts? It's not happening because the game evolves and it changes and coaches evolve and adjust and you end up finding what the market inefficiency is and you can exploit that. And like, there was just no way we were going to go on this continued upward trajectory for the next however many years. And I think it is interesting to your point that even if it doesn't go down, the fact that it has stabilized is interesting and and maybe it's like an inflection point and and yeah it'll be interesting to continue to monitor for sure yeah and just one last point so the the that yeah. three-point attempt rate 34.7 percent that would be the lowest since 2018-19 so yeah. it's not like it seems like a small number but it's i don't think it's totally insignificant that that's a trend that we're seeing so far oh and to be honest with you i actually think that is somewhat of a sweet spot like about a third of the shots going up in an NBA game are from deep. I think that is very much a sweet spot and we're not, you know, anywhere near the numbers, the people who feared the modern game thought we'd get to. Yeah. Well, sorry. You think that's a sweet spot, like aesthetically or tactically? No, aesthetically, I'd say like aesthetically, I think it's a sweet spot. Tactically to me, it's like, it also depends on your roster makeup and and things like that. It's not going to be the same for every team, but I'd say aesthetically, I, I think it's a pretty good sweet spot right now where there's a lot of threes, but in the grand scheme of things, it's still only a third of the shots that are going up. Like, right. And I think it's, yeah. it's worth pointing out that it's also very contingent on defensive behavior. Where it's like, yeah. if, if defenses around the league are like, no, we're taking away threes at any and all cost, then we're going to see, you know, three-point rate dry up and probably inside the arc shots increase. But I think for defenses, it's a balance as well. Like, you can't completely sell out to stop the three-point line because you're going to get gashed in the yeah. middle. So... This does feel, to your point, like maybe the right balance for both offenses and defenses to strike. And uh, yeah. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see another huge spike without some rule change or, you know, some paradigm shift that is brought about, whether it's like a transformational player, you know, like a, a Harden or a Steph Curry uh, or just some other tactical evolution that we haven't thought of yet. I feel like this, this seems like about the right stabilization point. Yeah. I think aesthetically, competitive balance-wise, I think the league's in a good spot right now, star talent-wise. I think it's uh, good things. No doubt. All right, want to do make or miss? Let's do it. All right, back by popular demand, it is our make or miss segment where we alternate shooting our shots with a random take, and then we tell each other in 60 seconds or less, if possible, whether it's a make or a woeful miss. So, 60 seconds on the clock, which I am putting on my phone. Does it have to be a woeful miss? Like, can it just be a a narrow miss where it's like in and out? It can. It can. I think that'll depend on on the take, I guess, right? I suppose. All right. So my first one for you, Joe Wolfong, is contrary to previous years where he has started slow and then really got going, Mm. Jason Tatum has started this season 
averaging 32.5 points, 8.3 rebounds, 3.5 assists, and 1.3 blocks on 56-38-90 shooting, playing more than 37 minutes a game through four games while the Celtics have started 3-1. and one. So make or miss Joe Wolfond. Jason Tatum has been the best player in the NBA thus far. I'm going to call it a miss, but not a woeful miss. Okay. Just one that... I caught rim. Hit, I caught rim. rim a couple of times and spilled out uh, because he has been tremendous on both sides of the ball. Like his defense has been absolutely insane. He's just, he's gotten to that level where he's just appearing in gaps. Like he is consistently in the right place at the right time. His help has been unbelievable. And then offensively, then like the biggest change that I've seen from him is just the inside the arc scoring. He's getting to the rim more than seven times a game, which has been a bit of a bugaboo for him in the past. And he showcased a little bit of a floater game, which is something he's never really had in his bag before. Like the footwork when he's trying to navigate tight spaces inside the arc looks immaculate to me. I'm still thinking about that little Euro step to sidestep floater that he hit over Embiid in the first game. So I think he's been tremendous, but I think Giannis has been the best player in basketball so far. Uh, and that's that's maybe the only guy that I would put ahead of Tatum from what I've seen. Yeah, I can't disagree with that too much. I think guys like Devin Booker, Damian Lillard, even John Morant are in the mix as well. But I think the defensive difference between Tatum and Giannis and those guys puts them in another level. So can't disagree with that too much, right? Hit me with a make a miss. Okay, Cash. The LA Clippers came into the season with huge expectations. They were a 500 team last year with zero Kawhi and less than half a season of Paul George. But with those guys back in the fold, or I mean, back in the fold is sort of a, a relative term in this case. Uh, they haven't looked great. They have the 29th ranked offense in basketball, better than only the woeful Lakers. And Kawhi has played two of their four games so far. He's already been, been ruled out for their fifth game with very worryingly stiffness in his surgically repaired knee. So my make or miss for you is this. The Clippers will not actually be able to contend this season because Kawhi Leonard won't play enough. And that can mean that he, he won't play enough for them to develop the chemistry required or he simply won't be healthy enough at any point, regular season or playoffs for them to realistically contend. Unfortunately, I'm going to call this a make, man. Like... You said it. He's, he's played two of four games. He, they're bringing him off the bench in those games. And not just bringing him off the bench, bringing him in in the middle of the second quarter. He's only played in two of four games, despite the fact there's been no back-to-backs. He's already been ruled out for the fifth game with stiffness in the surgically repaired knee, as you mentioned. In the two games he's played, he's played only 41 combined minutes. So it seems to be he's in some like on some sort of guidelines right now where he can play like 20-ish minutes every two to three games, which is... Pretty damn concerning considering the fact that all this after he missed 16 months with the knee injury, he hasn't played 70 games in a season in six years. He's only played 60 games in a season once during that six-year time. He now, you know, is a guy who's on the wrong side of 30 with a torn ACL in his background with that troublesome quad that's given him problems for a long time now. Like, as much as you know, everyone loves watching Kawhi and knowing how seemingly inevitable his team's success feels and his own success feels when he's on the court and with the ball in his hands, 
I just, the evidence is mounting to the point where I cannot believe that he will be on the court enough for the Clippers to contend. Are we sure that these injuries, though, aren't a result of him coming off of the bench? Because <laughs> great segue to Russell Westbrook. Who... Oh, joy. Love talking about this guy. Well, you better love it because I'm about to hit you with, with a Russell Westbrook themed make or miss. So Westbrook, while obviously not the Lakers' only problem, continues to very clearly be a problem. He is decision to shoot a long jumper up one with what 17 on the clock and like maybe 30 something on the game clock in their eventual collapse and loss to Portland was one of the biggest reasons they collapsed against Portland one of the worst late game crunch time decisions I have seen in recent memories and to be honest if I went back in my memory and found the last one it was probably also made by Russ Darwin Ham after pulling him for the last 12 seconds of that game was asked about you know potentially causing a rift with Russ because he benched them, talked about how he doesn't have time to worry about players being in their feelings right now. Things are just getting more contentious. So all that said, we know they want to trade him. We can assume at some point they will, whether it's one or two first round picks going the other way as well. Make or miss, forget benching him as in bringing him off the bench. The Lakers would be better served straight up shelving Russ until they trade him. Yeah, I, I think it's a make just for all the reasons that you mentioned. Like the the tension, like the sort of, I just, it doesn't seem like a good situation for Russ. And I don't want to like sound, you know, pater paternalistic or patronizing here, but I think it would be in his best interest as well for the sake of just like getting out of that situation for as long as it takes for them to find a trade partner. And it's not like, they're not showcasing him for a trade anyway. Like any team that acquires him, I think they're not, it's not going to be a, like a contending team or a competitive team acquiring him for the hope in the hopes of like him helping them win games this year. It's going to be a, a team that is acquiring assets in exchange for taking on what's left of his contract. So I don't know. I hope that he finds a situation where he can at least play and like feel comfortable and, and enjoy playing basketball again, because that doesn't seem to be what's happening in LA. And I think it would be in everyone's best interest for him to just be like away from the team while that situation gets sorted out. Okay. My, my last make or miss for you cash is about the Orlando magic. All right. I've been watching this team a little bit and they have this really interesting foundation that they're building of huge front court players, you know, like playmaking forwards or straight up bigs. They got Boncaro and Wagner. Uh, they got Mo Bamba and Bol Bol. They got Jonathan Isaac somewhere in the ether who will maybe return at some point in time. So given all that, given the interesting kind of bones that they have of this team that they're trying to build and, and the makeup of that roster, make or miss, if the Magic wind up with the number one pick in the 2023 NBA draft, they should draft Scoot Henderson over Victor Wembanyama. No, that's a miss. This one's an air ball. I'm sorry. I know people think Scoot can be a, a transcending guard himself. And I understand the fit aspect of it with Orlando and that giant roster they've already built. But I'm always of the mind that you always, always, always draft the best player available. And if that makes your roster log jammed at a certain position or a certain size or whatever, then you figure it out from there. You trade from a position of strength later, but you do not overthink it and skip out on drafting 
one of the best prospects of the last like 20 years, you know, one of the most intriguing prospects and certainly the most unique prospect ever uh, in Victor Wembanyama. Scoot could be great, but I think the ceiling of Victor is just another level and not drafting him because he doesn't maybe fit your roster when as interesting and as good as your roster could be one day right now, it is still bad. Like you just, you don't skip on drafting Victor Wembanyama. You just don't, I don't care who's the number two pick in this class. So that's a miss. Unfortunately, I think it's an interesting question, but I think it's a miss. Yeah, I would probably agree with you. I would definitely agree with you actually. And I think, (laughs) you know, for a team in Orlando's position, drafting for need is almost always the wrong approach, but I think given like Scoot's not just some ordinary no like, wing creator prospect either, right. right? Like he could be very special in his own right. And I just think what that magic team is really missing is like a genuine playmaker, like a real star shot creator that could kind of tie all those other interesting pieces together as opposed to, I hesitate to say redundancy because I don't think anyone can be redundant with Wembanyama. He's like very much a unicorn, but I think it's an interesting question if you're talking about like how to best maximize uh, the team that that you're building there. And, you know, I, to me, it's not crazy to suggest that they should take a long look at Scoot and maybe think about drafting him over, like over Victor. But at the end of the day, I think I would come down uh, on the same side that you're on. So that's it. All right. That's this week's make or miss. We can get to the fan shout out unless you have anything else to add. I do not. All right. Fan shout out this week goes to Tim Miller, who reached out on Instagram. Tim is based in Philly. He is a Sixers fan, sorry to hear. And uh, he says he's been listening for two months. So he is one of our newer listeners. So shout out, Tim. Thanks for adding us to your podcast rotation. Hope we've you know, given you exactly what you've been looking for so far, despite the fact we've haven't uh, had much time to big up your Sixers yet, given their start. But I'm sure there's time. The season is long. Usual call out, whether you're like Tim, a newer listener, or you've been listening for all 263 episodes, we want to give you a shout out for supporting the show. So reach out via Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at the score.com, joseph.cacharo at the score.com, or find me on Instagram like Tim did at joe underscore 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 cash. And let us know what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, how long you've been listening, where you listen from, and we'll get you that shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock. 